Bible reading today is um, the book of John, second chapter, <coughs> verses um, 12 through 22. And it's titled, Jesus Clears the Temple. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Well, Tonight, we get to talk about one of the most controversial action, actions that Jesus takes in his uh, <clears throat> whole ministry. As my dad just read, it's this idea of him cleansing the temple. So the passage, last, last week we stopped before verse 12, and I, I know most Bibles uh, keep 12 with this, the section before it. But verse 12 in chapter 2 of John is kind of a transition verse between the two stories, between the wedding story and the, and the first Passover, the cleansing in John. So it says this, After this he went to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples. They stayed there a few days. So this transitory story, uh, this connecting verse between these two stories, is interesting because John is mentioning a feature we know from the other Gospels, um, and specifically in Matthew. It tells us in Matthew 4.13, you'll see in your notes that Jesus actually moved to Capernaum. He left Nazareth, where he had grown up, where he was a boy, was his childhood home. And it says he actually, in Matthew 4.13, it says he made his home in Capernaum. So Jesus not only is very strongly tied to Nazareth in the Gospels, but he's also tied to Capernaum very strongly. Now John doesn't say that he lived there, but Matthew does, tells us that. So this is um, another... Uh, a testing verse that tells us Jesus actually moved his home to Capernaum. Um, so they go down to Capernaum and they stay there a few days. And then it says this in John 2.13. The Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So we read this passage already. But one thing that we have to ask ourselves, knowing the other gospel accounts... This Passover cleansing of the temple is in a different spot than we find in the Synoptic Gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 
In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of them record the cleansing of the temple during Passion Week, during the, the last Passover of Jesus' life. And so Jesus, uh, the, the temple cleansing in the other three Gospels is really, actually, specifically, uh, one of the main things that leads to his death is that he does this. And, and the way it's framed in the Gospels um, is that this is one of the, the major precipitating events. And so scholars have come to this question of, okay, were there two temple cleansings or one? Now, some scholars say that there were two, one at the beginning of his ministry, one at the end of his ministry. So this first one is very early, right? In, in John, they would say the first temple cleansing is in John. And the second one happens during Passion Week, like the synoptics say. The thing is, they're very similar stories, right? They're very similar. But there are some unique features, right? The unique features are the quotes are different. What Jesus says is different. He quotes, excuse me, he quotes Isaiah 56, 7. He quotes, um, he qu quotes Jeremiah 7, 11 in the Synoptic Gospels, the, the verse that most of us are used to seeing, right? Stop making, uh, it was, my father's house was meant to be called a house of prayer, and you are making it into a den of robbers. Right? That's the typical synoptic line. Here Jesus says, stop making my father's house a house of business or a house of trade. Okay, so there's some uniqueness there. Um, there's some other things that the whip of cords that is so iconic in our minds of this story that's only found in John, which is unique. The, the, the oxen and the sheep being there, that's only mentioned in John. So the question of whether there's two temple cleansing or one is interesting. Um, but I think more importantly, we have to ask of the story of what function does it have in the Gospels? And whether there was two temple cleansings or one, it's an interesting thing to think about. Uh, but I think they play different roles in each of the Gospels. They're saying something different. So when we come to this cleansing of the temple in John, we have to ask ourselves, what is John trying to say about the temple cleansing. One other thing to note is if it is one temple cleansing, that's the only temple cleansing that happened, um, ancient biographies and ancient stories, they didn't have the same idea of chronology that we have. The idea that you would take an event and put it somewhere else in, in the biography of someone's life wasn't, uh, it wasn't a bad thing to them, right? They weren't concerned about it. And... Um, I think we've, we fall into bad territory if we impose kind of our ideals of what something has to be onto the scriptures. The scriptures are very okay with making theological points. And John in particular takes events and makes theological points with them. And it could be that John possibly moves this, te this uh, temple cleansing to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Why? Well, it could be to, to put the message of this passage over the entirety of his gospel, right? That Jesus' ministry that you're going to see throughout the rest of the book is kind of has this shadow over it of what Jesus was trying to say in the temple cleansing. Verse 14. He found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Uh, money changers are different than tax collectors, right? Tax collectors were a very hated group of people. They were often thought to be robbers, and they would take extra beyond what they what they uh, needed for the tax. Money, cha money changers are not tax collectors, right? They're the equivalent of banks. 
right? People would be coming from all over the Roman Empire with whatever various currency they had, and they had to make it into the half shekel, which is the temple tax, right? So these were like bankmen, right? They would change currency to make sure you had the right currency to pay the temple, to pay out the temple. Um, and actually, a lot of times they were they were considered respected and and well liked. You know, they were people of high social standing. Um, and and one thing is that's interesting. We often hear this story of that kind of that economic <clears throat> exploitation, maybe being the reason Jesus is so incensed. And and most most scholars think that's probably not the case. That it's not economic exploitation of people that is the reason Jesus is so angry in the in these passages. These cleansings um, but he goes on he makes a whip of cords and he drives it says he drives the animals out of the temple the sheep and the oxen and um, and all of them and he pours out the, the money of the money changers and it's interesting because I've always had this image in my head growing up of kind of Jesus disrupting the whole system right like you kind of just have this idea of the temple of everything stops and everyone's like whoa like what happened right here what happened with this? Well, who is this man who came in here? Um, I don't think that's the case. I really don't think Jesus probably interrupted much of what was going on. It was probably a localized event uh, with just a few tables and a few of the, you know, the, the sacrificial animals that are there. Um, the reason we think that in part is because clearly Jesus is not arrested. He's not killed on the spot. One big thing to note about the temple complex um, Right in the temple complex is the Fortress Antonia, right? The fortress of Roman garrison is in the temple complex, right there. So there would have been Roman guards at the ready if they needed to uh, come and arrest someone, you know, quell an uprising, you know, put, put down a revolt. I mean, they were right there. And so I think it's probably a much more personal thing. It seems to be something that was clearly caught people's attention, but it's, it's much more intimate. You know, it's a small group of people. The disciples are seeing it. Jesus, some of the money changers, and probably some officials or some authorities who felt they had the right to come and question Jesus, right? So what is Jesus doing in this, right? He says, he, he drives them out, he pours out the money, he says, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of business. It seems like Jesus is purifying the temple. That's what we know. Is Jesus seems to be purifying the temple. Whatever the case, Jesus sees something and, and assesses it as wrong in what's going on in the temple. He sees that this is a place of business and it's meant to be his father's house. That this has become a place where they are dealing in sacrificial animals and they're, they're doing things that are, are not according to Jesus, up to the standards that need to be held in, in his father's house. It says in verse 17, his disciples remembered, right? So they look back and they remember what was written in the scriptures. Zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house comes from Psalm 69. Psalm 69. And it's an interesting psalm because... I don't know if I've said this before to this group, but one thing is anytime you see a quote from the Old Testament, you have to read it in context. You have to go back and read that verse where it comes from because it's telling you more 
beyond just the words that are quoted. It's telling you more about the situation, what's going on. And Psalm 69 is interesting because it's a psalm from David in which he is talking about how oppressed he is, how everyone hates him. And interestingly, it's even going to be talked about later on as a fulfillment of prophecy of Jesus on the cross. I won't read all of the psalm to you, but I'll read part of it. We'll start, um, we'll start in verse... Well, I'll start from the beginning, actually. But I won't read the whole thing. Verse 1 of Psalm 69. Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire, and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and a flood overflows me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. What I did not steal, I then have to restore. O oh God, it is you who knows my folly, and my wrongs are not hidden from you. May those who wait for you not be ashamed through me, O oh Lord God of hosts. May those who seek you not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel, because for your sake I have borne reproach. Dishonor has covered my face. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept in my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. My reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gate talk about me, and I am the song of the drunkards. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O, o Lord, at an acceptable time. O God, in the greatness of your loving kindness, answer me with your saving truth. Deliver me from the mire and do not let me sink. May I be delivered from my foes and from the deep waters. May the flood of water not overflow me, nor the deep swallow me up, nor the pit shut its mouth on me. Answer me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. According to the greatness of your compassion, turn to me. And do not hide your face from your servant. This is the same psalm. I'll just read it. It's only a few verses away. Sorry. And do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Answer me quickly. Oh, draw near to my soul and redeem it. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. All my adversaries are before you. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am so sick. And I looked for sympathy, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. So remember, that's a cross fulfillment, right? That verse is fulfilled in the cross. He's given sour wine to drink, sour vinegar to drink on the cross. So already you see, listen to the reproach, the aloneness that this psalmist is talking about. If you already are in the church and you know the story of Jesus, his cross and his resurrection, which obviously most of the people reading the gospel originally were already Christians, right? They knew the story of what Jesus had went through. 
and they hear Psalm 69 being quoted, they think of Jesus on the cross. They think of this psalm and the aloneness and the weakness and the pain and the reproach of Jesus on the cross. And then that's confirmed even further when you read the psalm and you know, oh yeah, the sour wine was given to me to drink, which is also quoted later on in the Gospels during the cross, right? So whatever is going on, there's this idea that the disciples remember this, this incident in light of the cross and resurrection. They remember it in light of what Jesus went through on the cross. It's possible that maybe Jesus' intention is judgment. It's temple judgment. See, what Jesus does is a prophetic act. What Jesus does is a prophetic act. And we know that because of the Jews' response to him. The Jews say to him, they don't just arrest him. They don't just, you know, kill him outright. They ask him a question. And they ask him, what authority do you have to do this? That means they understood that there was someone who had the authority to do that. That there was someone who had the place and position to cleanse the temple. In fact, in some ways it shows that they knew maybe it needed to be cleansed. And since it is a prophetic act, they, rather than arrest him, they ask him, what authority do you have to do this? What authority do you have to cleanse the temple? And Jesus responds also prophetically. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And of course, this is uh, one of the heights of John's irony, right? Excuse me. This is one of the heights of John's irony. John uses irony throughout the entire gospel, right? Jesus will say one thing and people misunderstand it. People have a different understanding. Or they think one thing and Jesus clearly means another. So their response is, it took us 46 years to build this temple that we're standing in right now. And you think you can raise it in three days? You think you can raise this temple that took us 46 years to build in three days? And of course, John, he's reflecting. He's reflecting and he says, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. Of his body. Destroy this temple... Jesus' physical body, this is important, Jesus' actual body, and I will raise it up in three days. So when he was raised from the dead, it says in verse 22, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. This was an act that was prophetic, and it seems that even the disciples did not understand it until the light of the resurrection. Even while they were there, present with Jesus, they didn't understand it. Not until the resurrection had happened did they know really what Jesus was talking about. 
And I think that's why John, in reflection, can say he was speaking of the temple of his body, right? What is the point of this temple cleansing in John? I told you that it's possible that Jesus, what, is, what he's doing is judging the temple, right? He's judging the temple. There's a judgment there. In the other Gospels, there seems to be a different point. It's about all-inclusiveness of, of the new reality for what will become Christianity. Right? In, in the Synoptic Gospels, the quote that Jesus says, My Father's house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. He's quoting two passages, I told you. Isaiah 56, 7. And the entire point of Isaiah 56 is this. Gentiles and eunuchs will come into the temple and be accepted. Right? There's a universality to what God is doing. That all people, not just the Jews, all people will be welcome. And the second part, the den of robbers part of that quote, is from Jeremiah 7.11. And what happens in Jeremiah 7? The temple won't protect you from being judged in sin. <coughs> the temple won't protect you from being judged in sin. See, in Jeremiah's day, everyone thought the temple would be what protected Jerusalem from being destroyed. And Jeremiah's prophecy in Jeremiah 7 is to say, don't you think I see the sin that goes on in the temple? You've made my house a den of robbers. And so in the synoptic gospels, those two things are being combined, those two ideas. This temple is not going to magically protect you from judgment for the Jews. And everyone will be accepted, the Gentiles and the eunuchs and all those who, who have seemed to be forgotten. They will all be brought into God's temple and be a part of God's people. But that's the synoptics. We have to ask what John is saying, regardless of two temple cleansings or one or whatever. What is the point of John's temple cleansing and why he puts it here in this point of the gospel? Why is it here at the beginning? What is John trying to say through it? And I think what John is trying to say and what Jesus quotes, destroy this temple in three days I will raise it up. There's a new temple. There is a new temple. Jesus' act, his prophetic act of judgment on the old temple is meant to show us there is a new temple. And what is that new temple? The new temple is Jesus. The new temple is Jesus Christ himself. Destroy this temple, the temple of his body, and I will raise it again in three days. What does that mean for Jesus to be temple? Well, we know in the Old Testament the temple was what? The temple was the place where God's spirit resided. The glory of God, it said, dwelt in the Holy of Holies. That, that glory of God is the spirit of God, the, the manifest presence of God, his spirit, dwelt in the temple. And so we see all kinds of connections with other parts of John in this story right here, in this short, tiny story. We go back and we say, remember what Jesus said in John 1? That he was the ladder of Jacob, the stairway to heaven? 
The temple, same thing. The connection between man and God. The place where man could meet God and God could see man and, and, and be there present with man. The temple, right? So he calls back to Jacob's ladder. It goes forward when Jesus says in John 3, uh, excuse me, John the Baptist says in John 3 that Jesus was given the Spirit without measure. Because why? Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the temple. It goes forward to John 4, right? John 4, in which he meets with the Samaritan woman. And what does he say to her? He says, there's coming a day where you will not worship on this mountain or that mountain. And if, what's the mountain he's talking about? Well, he's talking about the temple mount, right? Mm -hmm. The Samaritans who worship on Mount Gerizim and the Jews who worship in Jerusalem at the temple mount. There's coming a day when no one will worship in those places, but instead the Father is seeking worshipers in spirit and in truth. Jesus is saying the old temple has lost its validity. Why? Because Jesus is the new temple. Jesus is the new temple. And of course, it goes all the way forward to the end of the book when Jesus is crucified, when he's put to death and raised again, because they do. They do exactly what he says. They do exactly what he says. They destroy that temple, don't they? And they do take his life, and they do destroy that temple of Jesus' body. And he raises it in three days. And it's interesting, because I think that metaphor of the body of Christ, of us as the temple of the Lord, is actually, uh, it's a beautiful image, but it first comes in play because Jesus first is the temple, Right? For us to be his body, Jesus has to be the head. For us to be part of the temple, Jesus has to be the chief cornerstone, right? It says he's the cornerstone of the temple in various places in the New Testament. For us to be part of the temple, to be filled with the Spirit, Jesus has to have the Spirit without measure, right? He has to pour it out for us to become part of that temple. He has to pour the, the, the Spirit of God out on us. And then we too can be part of the temple, but only because Jesus is first the temple. And I think we have to remember that. We have what we have uh, legitimately, but also derivatively, right? We, we have it because Jesus has it. And still to this day, there is a sense, Jesus will always be the temple, right? Right? He will always be the temple. Why? Because we always go to him to meet God manifest. To meet the God who has manifested himself. The place we first and primarily go is to Jesus himself. That's where we meet God, is in the temple of God, which is Jesus Christ. And that's true even about his body today, right? The body of the church. The church is Christ's body and we still come to that temple, the body of Christ, the temple. We still come to that to meet Jesus. We still come to that to meet Jesus.
I was thinking about kind of the application of this passage this week and just what's uh, what's going on in our world right now and you know it's just been interesting to me to to think about the reality of this temple this this community right this community that the church is the temple of God that Jesus is that Jesus is the place where people come to meet God and yet so often uh, you know obviously the spirit is at work and doing things in the world and often supernaturally reveals Jesus to people but in many ways um, the place people come to meet God to meet Jesus is the church and and that is the one of the primary ways that the Lord has set up for people to meet him is the church the body of Christ this institution and um, I've felt like Jesus does a prophetic act against, kind of against the establishment, the political establishment, the religious establishment. He does this prophetic act of kind of standing against it to say there's something more important, something better, something new coming. And um, I have just felt in my, in my spirit that uh, with all that's going on with coronavirus, with coronavirus and um, all that's happening in the world today, that I also think there's kind of a prophetic act to be had. And um, I, I know I say this as a church with like seven people in it right now. So it's it, I, I'm making that qualification to say there's only seven of us here and it's an easy decision when there's only seven of us versus if you had a church of a thousand. You know, and what a hard decision that'd be to make to close or stay open or, or whatever that would be. Um, but I do feel in my spirit that uh, I guess ultimately a church, a church's decision, especially on closing or staying open or whatever in this season, um, is between them and God. So I'm not trying to make judgment on anyone else. But I will say I'm kind of aghast at how quickly, how uniformly the church has said, well, we'll just close down. We'll just close down. And there's something um, there's something that bothers me too about the fact that it's done that in willingness to the government ordering it to do so. Not not a request, not a plea, not a not an ask of the government, but by order, by command, that the church cannot meet. And uh, to me, that's the slipperiest of slippery slopes. To close at the order of the government, and so uh, I feel it, it, it that, in line with this passage, my prophetic act is to continue to meet as the church. To continue to meet at the church as the church, uh, regardless of what the government may say. And and like I said, I'm, this is not judgment on anyone else or any other community or any other Christian, uh, but I feel it is our calling to meet. I don't think we're supposed to forsake meeting together. I don't think we're supposed to, um, to forsake that. I think it's a very sacred thing. And I think, honestly, in these days of fear and um, just this overwhelming like paralysis people seem to be under in fear of this, this virus and in um, isolation from community, I think there's a true role for the church 
to offer community, to offer hope, to offer a place where you can still be valued and loved and, and cared for, uh, which is in short supply in general in the world, let alone during a season, let alone during a season when everyone's afraid to even be near another person, touch another person, be close to them. And so that is, it is kind of my, not that I would do this, you know, without uh, talking with, you know, my, the, the church or anything else, but it is my kind of belief that we are kind of being called as a church to stay open, to stay as a place. And maybe that doesn't pay dividends uh, even during this season. Maybe everyone just ends up staying home um, because they're scared. But I think that it pays dividends to be the type of church that would be willing to stay open during something like this, even if it is just for seven or eight of us or nine of us. You know, I think there's something powerful about that, that you can look back on this season and say, we felt it was our job, we felt it was our calling to stay open, to stay as a place where people could come. And I think there's power in that. I believe, I believe there's power in that act. And so... Um, that's, I guess, what I wanted to say to this awesome small group that I love, everyone in this room, and um, that I feel it's our calling to stay open, to let people have a place. And even now, we're only, you know, one week into this thing, and already it's, like, funny, and there's, like, eight of us, right? I mean, ima imagine the starving for community and love and hope three weeks from now, four weeks from now. And I think maybe this is a, a chance for us to offer something that there that other communities are not receiving, that people, uh, especially non-Christians, are not receiving right now. And I pray that we can offer that to them. And I pray you, uh, you know, obviously if you don't agree, I'm sure I'll hear from you anyway. <laughs> not like, like I wouldn't hear from anyone in this room, but but I hope you guys um, at least agree with the heart of what I'm saying that there's something we can offer in this season. So uh, that's just kind of what I want to share in terms of my heart for this church, and especially for this church in this season, what it's going to be like. And it'll be different, obviously, meeting in my parents' house rather than at our facility we've been rented. And um, I, it would save us some money. That's nice <laughs> for a little while. That's kind of cool. But um, but yeah, I just, uh, you know, I'm I'm more encouraged than I expected to be at this point. You know, we're only five weeks into this. And I, I do, especially last week, I thought last week was really special to happen before everything went crazy because I felt like last week was such a really sacred time as a, as a group to meet. <coughs> and, um, but I just want to share my heart and connect in terms of connecting this passage to where we're at as a church right now. That's what I think. Um, but also, as we close tonight, I thought we could, we could pray. And you know, our, especially in this season where everyone's afraid and everyone is so overwhelmed that we could pray for our world, pray for our nation, pray for our, our state. I mean, how unique that our state has been the most, by far the most effective in the country. Um, pray for our state and even our leadership. And so if we could, I thought we could do that as a group. And uh, I'll probably just um, let it, I don't know, popcorn style, I guess, right? Just anyone who wants to pray, feel, who feels led, uh, feel free to pray. But I'll open us and maybe I'll close us in just a few minutes. And um, bless you guys and then we can be done. Okay. 
Heavenly Father, we come to you knowing that uh, us meeting together is the temple life. For us to meet together, we are dwelling in your midst as the church. And frankly, you are dwelling in our midst as your spirit resides in us as believers. We are united by your spirit together as a church, as a community, both as the church, universal, and as this small, tiny, uh, precise (coughs) local body and what we have to offer to the community. And I just pray that... um, I pray that whatever we do have to offer, Lord, that our resources may be small or what we have to offer to this community, to the world, may be a small thing, but we know that, Lord, uh, those small things matter. And they're valuable and they can change lives. And that we believe and have been taught by you that every single life is valuable, is worthwhile, is precious to you. And so we uh, do not scoff at our size or at uh, one life that we could come into contact with that would be changed for eternity and the power of that one life that could be changed and so we we pray that you would help us to do whatever we need to do in this season uh, to bless people to make them feel encouraged Lord would we be a group of hope and not fear Would we not be led by fear or let fear control our hearts or our decisions or our love for others, um, but that in this moment when everyone is afraid, we would even more exceptionally love people, yes. more exceptionally be willing to uh, bring honor to them and love to them and, and uh, touch them. And I don't even mean that physically, but maybe. Maybe physically, in the power of touching someone, but I mean touching their heart, of being an encourager, of, yes. of speaking a word of love and life over someone. And I just pray that we would do all those things in this season, Lord, that that would be uh, meaningful for us to do in this day.